Time can be a blessing or a curse. Some of us feel we don't have enough time to get things done, while some complain about things taking too much time. Time tells us where we should be and for what. And until recently, the only way you could tell the time was to have a watch or look out for a public clock. And the problem with these non-digital clocks, of course, is they only worked for people who could see. But as Bob Dylan said, times are a-changing. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Gadigal people here in Australia. And my guest today, in Hong Kong actually, is Daniel Lee, brand manager at E1. E1 designed tactile watches. They started as a device for people who are blind or vision impaired, but they have now become quite a fashion statement for everyone. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Manisha, for having me on the show, and uh, that was a lovely introduction there. <laughs> oh, look, there's a lot of time in there, wasn't there? There was, there was. Someone someone wrote that and took a, took a lot of time to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And so uh, my first question for you is, could you describe for me um, the types of timepieces that E1 actually creates and what actually yeah. makes them different from every other watch in the market? Definitely. So for those who are familiar with the timepieces, um, they can relate to this. It's a very visually striking design. Um, it looks very different from what is your conventional timepiece or watch um, that has the two hands. And instead of the two hands, it uses two ball bearings um, to, to indicate the time. Um, for those who are visually impaired or have low vision, um, when you first get your hands on this, this does not feel like your typical adaptive timepiece. It's not made out of um, sort of lower quality materials. We took a lot of time to consider the, the type of materials used um, and it feels great in the hands it looks great but it also is a great conversation piece um, so it's very very striking when you look at it um, it's very interesting to play around with it's a great fidget toy um, so you know the ball bearings swing around on the, on the dial and, and people fidget around with them all the time um, so yeah <laughs> so if you had to audio describe that watch um, that i can see on your hand there how would you describe mm -hmm. it Okay, so the easiest way to describe it for someone who's never laid eyes on it um, is to imagine the Oreo cookie. Um, it has pretty much the identical dimensions of an Oreo cookie, and it has a like a top sandwich, a bottom sandwich, and, a, and an outer track, which is slightly sort of grooved inwards. And that outer track um, has houses a ball bearing, which tells the hours, and then the top-facing track, which faces the user, um, tells the minutes. So contrary to your um, regular watch, where the shorter hand is the hour, and the longer hand is the minute, it's the other way around here. So the first reference is the minutes, the second reference is the hours. And it's actually like I love the Oreo cookie <laughs> description there. But I think the key difference for me as well is an Oreo cookie has lots of bumps on it. But this is actually really smooth and sort of this lovely, aesthetically pleasing design as well. Yeah, well, actually, it has a lot of interesting surfaces um, from oh, a right. tactile point of view. The mm -hmm. um, All the markers are raised. Um, they're very pronounced, so they're e easy to distinguish. The 12 o'clock has a, a triangle to represent the 12, and then the cardinal markers, the 369, are slightly elongated compared to the rest of the markers. So it's very easy to differentiate 
where you are on the watch, uh, whether you're at 12, whether you're at four, whether you're at seven. And so can you tell me a little bit then about how that design came about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't take credit for this. This was, uh, this was the original team led by Hyung Soo Kim, the, um, the founder of the company and, uh, a bunch of bright minds from MIT, Rhode Island, Harvard and Duke. Um, so the original design was actually nothing like, uh, what we see today on this Bradley timepiece. Um, Hyung Soo and, and the original team started out making, um, a watch that had braille on it. Right. And so, and the funny thing was, um, if you, if you watch the TED talk that, that Hyunsu did, which was, uh, I think it's called designing, uh, designing a watch for everyone sighted and blind. Um, he talks about the first misconception that they came across during the design process, which they automatically assumed going into the process, um, that designing a braille watch was the best solution, um, uh, because they were designing for the blind. And I suppose, you know, in, in keeping with the theme of the show, it, this is definitely a with not for story. <laughs> um, and the Braille watch caused a great problem at the start because the, uh, the original focus group, they said, well, before we get started on this, do you realize how many, how many of us actually read Braille? And I think back then the Braille literacy rate was about 10%. Um, right. and so it's a very, very low number if you think about it. So nine out of 10 people don't read Braille because they um, go through vision loss or blindness at a later stage in their life. Right. Um, and so they reworked the design and came up with something that was actually designed with the, the blind focus group in mind. And they ended up with a product that was wearable for both a sighted individual and a blind person. And I think that's quite beautiful as well, that idea that we designed from that edge and you had a design that worked for sighted people as well. I know that um, a couple of us have been using these watches internally as well. And as someone mm -hmm. who is sighted, that you mentioned this tactility that the watch has as well. I keep calling mm -hmm. it, sorry, a watch. You don't use that term, right? You use timepiece. What's that about? So um, the reason why we use the, the term timepiece is because um, with a watch, it insinuates that you have to visually look at it because of the right. term watch um so we use the term timepiece because you don't need sight to read it oh i love that <laughs> it's great well because words matter right absolutely absolutely okay so i'm going to reframe that then so in terms of this timepiece that works for mm -hmm. people who can and can't see and it's it's very lovely to feel what's some of the feedback that you've had across I guess, different groups in terms of um, the timepiece. Yeah. So interestingly, um, uh, another statistic that we could probably pull is um, in the original Kickstarter project, um, when they launched in 2013, over 95% of the backers um, as part of the survey um, are cited. And we're, and we're talking about, you know, in excess of 4,000 individuals here. Right. Um, and so what that proves is that this, um, design is attractive to not only the, um, the users who have different abilities and low vision and, and blindness, but it's also appealing to the mass audience. Um, so from a sighted perspective, it's a really fun watch. It's, it's really interesting to look at. It gets conversations going. Mm -hmm. Um, and from, and the same reason for the, uh, for those who 
are blind and low vision. Um, it's a conversation starter. I, I think one of the m- most memorable feedbacks I I, um, I can recall from feedback sessions. Um, so I can't I can't remember his name, but he he has low vision, and he he said the first thing that I um, noticed when I received this watch and when I took it out was people stop people stopped asking me about my disability. And people oh, started nice. asking me about the timepiece and the conversations flowed. And in effect, the watch, the timepiece has done its job in engaging uh, the wider audience. It's interesting to hear you say this and to reflect on this in the context of your career, because you've had a long career in this in the watch or the timepiece industry, um, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in the disability sector. So what mm-hmm. surprised you the most when you think about working for a company like E1? I think the biggest um, thing for me, what attracted me to the role and what I um, learnt very quickly in the in the early stages of my, of my sort of past three years here, um, the people. Uh, the people in the community, the people that we get connected to, like yourselves at the Centre for Inclusive Design. Um, the community is very strong, very focused, um, very willing to help and pull together uh, because there is a um, a common goal that we're all trying to achieve out of this, and that is to... Um, make inclusion a bigger topic and drive that conversation on disability awareness and accessibility. And I think that's the probably the most surprising thing um, about the company when, when I first started. Um, people are, as I like to put it, champions of change. They, they like to advocate change. So is that different to other organizations you've worked with? I think so. I, th- I think, you know, um, the watch industry is very old it's you know centuries old and mm. steeped in tradition and they have their own design principles and they have their own markets that they follow but what's really interesting from you know a, a business perspective is that the guys who originally designed the, the bradley timepiece um none of them came from uh watch backgrounds none of them came from um this sector and so Oh, sorry, you I've know. just interrupted you there. Oh, no, no, <laughs> that's um, all right. But so why did they do it? Well, um, the the original story came from a problem with um, existing products on the market. Uh, back then, before the Apple Watch was prominent, we would have essentially um, the talking robotic voice watches where you press a button and it blares this hideous voice out at you. Um, and then you'd also have braille flip-up watches where uh, you could t- touch the time on a hand, uh, but those were rather unreliable once you've jogged the hands out of place. Mm. And so it, it stemmed from this necessity to build a better product, um, but also to build a product that didn't marginalize people further and say, like, here's another tool for a disability. Rather, it's a tool that both you know, a sighted, non-sighted person can use. But I'm still really interested in this because with those founders, if they didn't have a disability, mm-hmm. okay, and they weren't from the watch sector, mm-hmm. why did they come up 
with this thing that they wanted to solve? Why did they come up with E1? Well, the uh, the original reason why Hyungsoo came up with this idea was actually he had a classmate who uh, was blind. Um, right. And during class and during lectures, uh, this friend of his would you know nudge him on the shoulder and ask him, hey, what time is it? And Hyungsoo was kind of perplexed by this because he, he could see that the, this gentleman's wearing a watch on his on his wrist, uh, but it was a talking watch. And obviously, you don't want to be pressing a button and reading the time out loud in the middle of class because everyone knows that you're checking the time. It's disruptive. It's, you know, um, rude to some. And so he made it his mission to redesign that, um, that product. Oh, I love that. So it started with one person. Essentially, yeah. It started with uh, one, one gentleman, one friendship. <laughs> and it's lovely how one friendship can be so rich and insightful when it comes to designing um, a product or a service. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested in the role that the community has played from that one person to a broader community when it comes to designing and developing these timepieces. Yeah, Um so the community has always been there from day one, from the original focus groups who kind of challenged the the original assumptions and misconceptions that that the founding team had. Um, I mean, referencing the TED talk again, a, a funny a funny part of that focus group was the first question after the the Braille literacy point was, "What color is it? You know, what material is it?" And Hyungsoo was sitting there perplexed, going, "Why does this blind person care about the color of the?" Right. product and and you know that in itself um speaks volumes to you know the the sort of assumptions that we make when we design a product without properly taking time and care to to consider actual uh needs of the end user um that's still important to what we do today and and how we develop future products for the company but beyond the actual product itself we still um involve our community in the way that we communicate, the way that we build our campaigns and our events. Um, They're there from the inception of the idea through to the execution of it. Um, So they play a part in every facet of our business, really. And, you know, you're coming to this as a brand manager as opposed to a design manager. I'm really interested in how you've had to think about your brand when you think about your audiences and when you think about what you're creating, what would you say to other people who want to be more inclusive from a brand perspective? I think it's, you know, any any small increment could still be the right step in moving the needle on making things more accessible. Um, I don't think people necessarily have to say, hey, we need to redesign our whole product line um, and and make everything inclusive. But, you know, making a conscious effort to make your web accessibility um, more accessible or following uh, WCAG guidelines in that sense, or including users into a feedback loop more often for future right. product developments, those things can be, you know, considered more inclusive as well. And what do you say to people who say, well, we can't find the users? I think, you know, if you said that 10 years ago, sure, the the resources weren't around and the idea of inclusive design was very young back then. But now Mm. there are so many organizations 
is out there. There's so many resources online. Um, and I think it's a misconception because we're, we're scared of change or we don't know, um, how to start it. And in reality, it's pretty easy. <laughs> I'd like to unpack that a little bit more because that notion of being scared of change, I'm really interested in how this worked for you coming from, a, you know, not working with people with disability, not working in an organisation which was focused, um, you know, on new young people as well as people who are on the edges. What were the things that you were worried about and how did that play out in those first few days when you just changed jobs into this one? I think... It's, you know, breaking your schema and breaking your your uh, bias and actually mm -hmm. just sort of putting everything you, you know aside and saying, like, well, what are the lived experiences? What are the actual experiences that these people can share to me? Because none of us know everything. I think it's it's foolish and arrogant to, to go into a design process thinking that you know everything. Um, and so to get people involved and really have them just share their lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, that was the biggest takeaway. That was the biggest learning. Um, and the more I did it, the more it was just, uh, it was an essential part of the week, really, just to carve out time to say like, hey, we're, we're going to engage the community here and we're going to, you know, learn about something new this week. It's It's just like a constant learning process and it still has been for three years now. Oh, I love that. Love that. Okay, and I'm going to change topics a little bit. Mm. I'm really interested in the lessons that can be applied from E1 to the watch mm. industry as a whole and then also the other industries as well. I think um, so kind of going back on the last point really, yeah. um, I I don't know if I can speak on behalf of the watch industry. Um but definitely there are there are lots of things that we can do um, overall in, in terms of moving moving ourselves as brands as businesses um, to be become more inclusive of um, users of differing abilities just to have them involved in the conversation. Um, I don't think it requires any more effort than it originally does, and I think there are amazing case studies out there that we can all learn a lesson from. Um, people like OXO who made the good grips mm -hmm. and, you know, Sony's followed in, in the footsteps of uh, Microsoft recently with their, their new adaptive controllers. And I think it's exciting. It's, uh, it's a positive response in the community and we're including more and more people in. Um, so if anything, I would just say look around because lots of things are happening. And I'm really fascinated by what you're doing at E1 because when we think of the watch industry, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it's an mm -hmm. industry that's been around for a long time and fundamentally hasn't changed a lot when we think about that timepiece, mm -hmm. except, of course, in the digital age where with phones and computers giving us the time and reminding of, us of appointments, what's the future of timepieces in general? Um. I, I think from from my standpoint, um, the idea of a, a timepiece or a watch is is oxymoronic in itself, right? It's a, it's a product that transcends time. It's it's timeless. Right. Um, they carry with them stories. They mark milestones in in one's lives. 
um, birthdays, birth of newborns, marriage, retirement. Um, it's a reference of time, right? Um, and I think that's where we kind of fall in love with, with watches. Um, and I think to that extent, they will always be around. Right. Um, I don't foresee myself in, in five to 10 years, you know, passing down a, a Samsung Z Flip 5 to, to my kids as, as an heirloom. Um, you know, I might pass down a watch though. That's, that's a different thing. Right. Um, so I do think they, um, they have that sentimental aspect to them. But I, I guess speaking on, on from the community front, um, so the, the E1 timepiece represents, you know, this freedom of choice and the self-expression as well. It's right. also part, part of the identity. Um, it's the same reason why we choose the clothes that we wear and the products that we buy. Right. Um, and same reason why we buy the mobile phones that we buy. Uh, I think for that reason, they'll, they'll stick around. As you were talking then, one of the things that came to mind is how tactile this watch really is. So it's not actually ephemeral like time. It's something mm -hmm. that I have a relationship with because of those ball bearings and the way they move across this, um, you know, this artwork really. But you're also moving on with this um, timepiece as well, right? Like mm -hmm. we, I think we were talking earlier before this podcast about some of the ways this timepiece can be used in ways that digital products can't be used. So tell us a little bit about some of the use cases. Yeah, I think for for um, for a lot of users, the idea of um, discrete notification or discrete time telling is, is also important. Um, yes, there are accessible ways to tell the time now, you know, having um, having your Apple watch hooked up to your AirPods and, and telling you the time through there, but you wouldn't necessarily be sitting around in a meeting with AirPods on. Um, you can tell the time very easily on a, on a timepiece or on a Bradley timepiece, you know, under the table, whether you're at a, a really long meeting or a dinner that you don't want to be at, you know, you can, you can just sort of reference it very quickly under the table there. So I think you were also telling me about um, how digital watches don't work in certain locations. There, there are limitations to smartwatches where, you know, especially when we're not talking purpose-built adventure watches as well. Um, and they do have their limitations in, in different environments, whether they're, you know, in the mountains, deserts. I, I have been spending a lot of time with Justin, who's a, who's a rock climber. Um, and the guy is just not a smartwatch kind of guy, but he's happily, happy to wear out our timepiece out because it's robust enough for him to take around with him uh, on his journeys. It's interesting enough for him to, you know, keep it on his wrist. Um, and at the end of the day, it serves one purpose. It tells the time and it does it very easily. Right. And a lot of people who are blind or low vision are adventurers, right? Oh, absolutely. You'd be surprised. You'd be very surprised that the, the stories I've heard of scaling Kilimanjaro and, you know, doing absolutely crazy things that I would never do. <laughs> So final question then, a what if question mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. If you could change or redesign one thing in your everyday life to make it more accessible or inclusive, a bit like Justin has been with you when it comes to E1, what would your product be and why? Mm. Um, I personally am not a huge fan of touchscreens. Um, I, I like them 
when they're they need to be there. I right. dislike them when they don't need to be there. And and I think that extends to sort of touch capacitive controls as well. Um, so in and around the home, I actually prefer my home appliances to have like physically tactile buttons. Um, right. It's a, lot, it's a lot easier to navigate. And I don't think about it as much, especially around the kitchen. Um, you got like wet hands from cooking and you're trying to like get the microwave to, to get going or things like this or the dishwasher and you're there's like just flat surfaces with no tactile registration at all. And and you have to sit there fiddling around with like pressing the right spot to make sure that you hit the right button. Um, and I remember I, I spent a lot of time on the road in, in previous jobs, sort of upwards of 40 hours in a, in a week. Right. Um, and I just loved the fact that in my old car, the, the buttons were tactile and the controls in the center console were very, so easy to navigate without sight, like from muscle memory, I know where they are. But the touchscreen now, when you when you drive something, I won't reference cars in particular, but when you drive a certain car with a huge ass touchscreen in the middle of it, it's just annoying to try and reference anything on the on the screen whilst on a highway. Um, I just don't I don't get it. <laughs> um, I love that because that's also about form versus function, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, I think there was a um, a study on the the Ford Focus that came out in 1999 as as being a, an incredibly accommodating piece of design. You know, we might argue it doesn't look great, but it took into account um, users of an old age and young age and you know, wider door entrances, uh, more headroom. The center console controls were very easy to navigate differentiate and operate and i think those were um sort of key things which led to the success of the the ford focus as well Um, absolutely and i think this is a really interesting um, point you bring up here as well around the difference between design that looks good and design mm -hmm. that's a good experience and the two aren't necessarily the same thing Absolutely. And I do have a funny story from Justin, if you if you want that as well. Oh, yes, please. So when I was hanging out with Justin, he told me about this um, This time. We, he was shopping at a, a large US supermarket chain, um, and he was at the cashier checking out. And when it came to the card payment process, the card terminals next to the cashier, and um, for those who don't know Justin, uh, Justin Salas, he has optic neuropathy, so he has very limited peripheral vision, uh, which means that when it comes to using his mobile phone or any small um, screens, he sticks his face really close to the device to to actually like use the the screen. And so, when it came to the card terminal in the US, you'd get a million prompts on the checkout about you know receipts and whatnot. And so he started sticking his his face really close to the card terminal. And the cashier got very aggravated by it. And she was like, what are you doing to the, the card terminal? You can't be doing that. And started calling the security guard over. Oh, no. And Justin was like, well, I'm blind. I can't see. And I can't see what, it, what it's asking me on the screen. Um, all in all, you know, they, they managed to walk away from it after someone spoke up about it. But I just find it hugely like, hilarious, but also deeply saddening that that's the, that's the case. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the world isn't designed for so many people, but I'm really glad that companies like E1 exist to actually help 
to make the world more inclusive and also to show us what we can do even with products that you know we think of as old world products rather than new world products um mm -hmm. you know so i think that's a really interesting thing so thank you so much for your time today it's been wonderful having you here and to hear your stories as well well thank you manisha for having me um it's been it's been lovely thank you absolute pleasure and thank you everybody for listening to this podcast and being here with us on with not for if you'd like to learn more about how you can make your world more inclusive contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes where we'll also put a link to that ted talk as well so until next time this is manisha amin from the center for inclusive design 